It's Flat Out RC time once again. Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking about radio control planes, drones and helis. My name is Andrew Sill. I'm the host of this program coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. Now, uh, I say this every week. We've got a great show coming up. Uh, very special guest in Dennis Travisaros, uh, a pattern guy, an F3A gun flown for Australia, at the world champs multiple times, legend of a guy. Now, I'll tell you what, you've got to stay tuned for Dennis's uh, uh, interview because he shares with us a lot of great, insightful information about uh, flying pattern. And uh, so if you want to improve your flying, whether it's your scale flying or your pattern flying or IMAC, there's a few little snippets of gold that uh, Dennis shares with us. So stay tuned. But before we get to Dennis, let's take a look at what's been happening around the traps. Flying Down Under is back in full swing. I'll tell you, well done, Australia, with this COVID situation. In Victoria, we went from a severe lockdown for many, many months with no flying down to, they're calling it triple, triple we were saying double donuts, but we're triple donuts now. We've got zero cases, uh, zero deaths, and uh, basically we've eradicated COVID um, based on definitions down here in Victoria going from, I think, a peak of something like 780 or something uh, cases per day down to donuts. So everything's sort of coming to, coming back to opening up. You know, we're seeing other countries around the world really still you know, in the grips of the COVID uh, battle in the US, in Europe. But uh, and our thoughts go out to all those people down here in Victoria. We know what it's like to be locked down, uh, but we also know what it's like to be free. And so... Hang in there because freedom will come. Good news about vaccines. Now, as far as the hobby goes, we're heading towards the end of the year. Uh, events still all on hold, really. Not much happening. Uh, good to see that the Victorian turbine uh, flyers are back running some events. The uh, Victorian Jets Association are running, trying to get a couple of events in at uh, Mangalore Airport and maybe Wangaratta or just maybe both at Mangalore, I think. Uh, before the end of the year, they haven't had a great year at all. Haven't had the opportunity. So, turbine guys, well done. You'll be out there flying in no time. Now, new products. Uh, friends at Horizon Hobby. Our friend Ali Machinchi, who's been on the podcast. If you if you want to hear a great podcast, go and have a listen to Ali Machinchi's podcast that I did with him. The interview, one of the older interviews. The guy's a legend of a bloke. Absolute awesome legend and he has his dream job working for horizon hobby working on the development of new models and the latest one you can just tell has been a dream of his and i think he's mentioned that somewhere in the media that the new model is something called an ov10 bronco now what the ov10 bronco is it's a it's a military aircraft it's sort of a more modernish day uh you know it's an old warbird i consider it to be a newer warbird it's a twin engine model uh, that has a twin boom rear end uh, with a big massive elevator between the booms. And this OV-10, Ali said that, you know, he always wanted to make one and he had to convince, you know, the team just because he wants to build a model doesn't mean that Horizon is going to make it. It has to be viable. And the claim to fame with this model is that I think Ali sort of unveiled the model at the recent Top Gun event uh, and I think won. 
I think the model just on debut won its category and you know Ali was flying it and he's a he's an amazing pilot really really good pilot like seriously good um flyer but he brought this model out and it's phenomenal it is a big it's a big plane we're talking about 108 inch wingspan so it is giant scale and it's uh recommended to be powered by twin 30cc gases 30 35cc gas engines um and as i said it is a twin and you can run it on electric power as well but i think the big feature of this model is the scale detail that that ali's tried to put into it um okay it's a big model it sits up on its retractable undercarriage you can get it with i think with and without retracts but i'll tell you what if you don't get it with retracts then you're just wasting your time but you've got to have the electric retract system that hanger nine will sell you it's got a painted scheme uh you know we've seen this painted covering film used on some aerobatic models extreme flight started doing it pilot rc i think might be doing it a little bit or some other people have been doing some painted scheme kind of stuff um, but apparently this is a different kind of material that goes on uh but it, and it, but the big advantage of it is the texture of it it gives you that really nice matte finish that ali wanted to have with this model a bit like the the real ones uh so what are some of the other features we've got the website open here so yeah twin uh twin 30 ccs uh 12 channel transmitter receiver required um finally detailed satin finish printed cover includes panel lines rivets and weathering laser cut bolster and plywood fully painted fiberglass cowlings with scale details including weathering pre-painted plastic spinners included three-piece plug-in wing with center section landing gear support for easy transportation and field assembly ah that's a good idea so the middle wing section does have the um the landing assemblies in that so you don't have to worry about you know connecting things up with uh retracts uh on the outer wings uh large top hatch with spring latch system cockpit details include painted pilot figure two seats and 3d instrument panel includes mounts for the gas electric uh functional four panel flaps deploy using internal linkages so nice and clean there but four panels because of the way with the um with that way that that rear end with the twin boom you've got the different different sections of how the flaps can deploy other scale details include guns sidewinder missiles and centerline drop tanks painted plastic front turret adds scale realism uh so nice thing so it says here that the ov10 bronco is one of the largest it was our largest giant scale world bird to date hmm. so it's big um now the ov10 I read somewhere, where was I reading on this page? I thought somewhere it was used for a light attack vehicle, I think. Um, full-size OV-10 Bronco was one of the most versatile military aircraft and saw actions a light attack and an observational platform. Faster than a helicopter, yet slower with more maneuverability than a jet. Uh, it saw action in the final years of the Vietnam War. So yeah, a relatively more modern, modern plane. Now, it's awesome looking. It's the, the size, the twin engines, uh, the way it sits on its undercarriage, the twin boom. It, it's really a, a different airframe and something that I thought the, a company like Horizon would never make because it seems like it could be a bit of a niche. But I can tell you now, as soon as you lay eyes on it, you think that is awesome. It is just an awesome looking um, plane in the air. Uh, so yeah, 108 inch wingspan, um, pretty big thing there. 
look, it's an ARF, everything go together. The the retract systems actually that are hanging on to the right aren't too bad. The electric retracts, which is nice and fuss free, just have to plug it into your receiver and off you go. Uh, exquisite scale detail. So yeah, Ali's done a good job in, in directing this this little project. So take a look. Uh, let's have a look and see what Model Flight will be selling them for. Our friends at Model Flight, no doubt. They are. They will be available. You know, with what these kind of models, uh, there'll be limited numbers. Uh, from history, these models, you know, they'll do maybe one big production run, and then you may not see them again. You'll see it again if it sells well. You know, Horizon's a, a pretty savvy business, so uh, they're out of stock. I don't think they've been delivered yet at the moment, but the the the, the recommended retail price is around $2,600 Australian. So it's not a cheap airframe, but you're getting a lot of bang for your buck in an airframe like that. You know, it's a seriously good scale model and big at that. Don't forget, you've got to put your twin engines in, that kind of thing. So I can't wait to see someone at the Shepherd and Mammoth event with a Hangar 9 OV-10 Bronco. Get on to modelflight.com.au uh, or your local hobby shop to see if they'll bring one in for you when they do arrive. Uh, there has been a shortage of supply in the hobby industry as a result of COVID, but stay in there. Uh, the best thing to do is go to your local hobby shop and tell them that you're interested and they'll do their best to try to get your name on a waiting list or something like that and it will come when it comes. So there you have it. Hang a nine, OV10. It's guest time, and this week's guest is Dennis Travisaros. Now, Dennis, I consider him to be one of Australia's best uh, pattern F3A pilots. So he's competing in uh, in aerobatics in that F3A scene. He's represented Australia at a number of uh, international events, including at world championship level. Uh, really committed to the hobby and improving his skills. And we're talking about precision flying here and it's a hard thing to do. It's a bit like trying to perfect the golf swing. I think you can work your whole life to try to perfect uh, pattern flying. You, you'll get close, but you'll never totally get it. So it's that journey that I think a lot of pattern flyers enjoy. And I really enjoyed this interview with Dennis because uh, there's a lot of snippets of gold, as I call it, that we can all learn from. So if you want to know a bit more about pattern, if you want to know a bit more behind the scenes and and know about the aeroplanes and, and practicing for, for, for pattern and a few little tips and things like that, then stay tuned because Dennis is going to deliver. So over to my chat with a great bloke in Dennis Travisaros. Well, it's my great pleasure today to have a very special guest, a, a gun aerobatics guy. That's what I call him, Dennis Travisaros. Thank you for joining me here on the Flat Out RC podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thank you very much. I don't know about a, a gun, but I, I do my best, mate. I do my best. Oh, look, I, I've seen you fly and um, I know you're a gun and, and in particular in uh, the F3A scene. So we're, we're really going to have a deep dive into F3A. So if anybody is really interested in understanding what F3A is all about, please stay tuned. Now, Dennis, really interested to, to hear your story in the hobby. How did you get started in aeromodelling? Look, that's pretty easy because one of the, I've got two two of my earliest memories as a toddler, and I do mean as a toddler, right? I'm talking two or three years old. Um, one is that 
I loved the family life, so I always wanted to grow up, get married, have kids, all that sort of stuff. And the other one was how amazed I was by flight. Um, and I just can't put that into words. Um, it just... It, 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 it was a miracle to me that you could watch things fly. It didn't matter whether it was a bird, a plane, or whatever. And I was just mesmerised by it, and I just wanted to engage in it from the get-go. So uh, sort of moving on from there, when I was sort of eight or nine years old, I met up with a guy uh, who became my best mate, uh, Dave, and um, his dad was into RC planes. And that's how it all started. Um, he had uh, some pretty nice sporty sort of models, and he was actually uh, what, using what we would call now classic pattern models as well um, back in the day. And uh, the one that I remember and the one that I love is the Blue Angel. And, um, you know, so around the age of 8, 9, 10, 11, I had exposed to all of that. And by the time I was 11, had my own four-channel radio, was learning how to fly with Dave's dad and, and all sorts of stuff. And then later on in life, it's, it just sort of progressed. You know, things slowed down a little bit in the teenage years when cars became interesting and oh. uh, girlfriend and all that. There it is. Uh, every yep. every every episode, the same story: cars and women. They ruin the hobby <laughs> well, for everybody. Well, funnily enough, I'm still interested in all of that. <laughs> I know we, we all are. <laughs> we never shake it. Yeah, well, I've actually got a couple of GT Falcons as well. So, oh, <laughs> hold on to. I've actually I've seen photos of them. They're awesome. You got to hold on to those. Yeah, that's the retirement fund right there. They are absolutely. And that's why I won't let them go. <laughs> well, just backtracking a little bit. So, your mate's dad sort of inspired you to get involved. What was your yep. first plane, mate? You would not. You would have to describe it as one of the most ugly ducklings you could have ever seen. Um, back then, uh, it was fairly common to just get something that you could fly. It wasn't a case of it looking like a normal aeroplane. So the fuselage basically consisted of a box at the front with two rails coming off it for the engine, and then just two uh, square stock blocks of timber running out from the back uh, underneath that box that came together at the end, which formed the platform for the tailplane. Um, it had something like a Enya or an OS Max 35 in it. It uh, was only three channel, didn't have ailerons, was only throttle elevator and uh, rudder. I had a four channel radio, but back then ailerons were a bit more sophisticated. <laughs> so. And and yeah, it was a homemade thing. I, I made all that myself. He gave me a basic plan of an aeroplane. I built it all. It was a ribbed wing. Um, solid tailplane, uh, and the rest of the construction was just rudimentary, just solid timber. And um, it didn't fly real well, but that's what got me started. Was it a kit or did you scratch build it? That scratch build. Oh, my God. Then you, how old are you at this stage? Oh, about 10. Crikey. Yeah. And did you, what, did you cover it? Was it covered or...? Yep, so um, it was uh, the, the woodwork, so the fuselage, uh, the framework and box at the front was all painted, uh, just hand-painted with, like, house paint, yeah. uh, bright orange. Um, and the um, the wing and tailplane were covered in uh, solar film, orange solar film. Where'd you buy yep. it? Where'd you get all the gear from? Like, what was your local shop back then? Yeah, look, I uh, I've actually visited the shop in recent years, I, I, there's a hobby shop called Berg's Hobbies in um, 
Parramatta in Sydney because I'm actually originally a Sydney boy. I grew up there and was there until about 30 years old. So uh, Berg's Hobbies in Parramatta was the local hang. Um, we used to go there after school and all sorts of things. We used to fly control line as well at that time. Um, and I don't know if you remember the old Cox models, the PT-19. Yep, yep. Uh, every hobby shop. Yep. Yeah. I did hundreds of hours with those things, hundreds. And I've still got the engines from those actual aeroplanes. Someone said to me, um, a friend of mine said that some of those Cox motors are worth a fortune now. He's actually got some special edition 049s and stuff like that. And he said he could yep. sell them for good money. Like, yeah, oh, really? like, I think things like Black Widows and, and all that sort of stuff, you would get a reasonable price for, mm. especially if they're, you know, new in box or whatever. Yeah, they're brand new in box. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, the, I, I didn't keep them because of that. I kept them because of the, just the, what they remind me of, yeah. you know, and how it takes me back there and how good it was. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's amazing when you look back at um, your early years in the hobby and how I always say that time makes everything look better in some ways, you know, that yeah. I, I say that to my mother-in-law when we, you know, we take the kids on a holiday overseas and, and at the time we're battling kids, you know what it's like, you know, trying to get them to eat and sleep and all that. And then six months later you go, that was a great holiday. And you forget that you spent half your time yelling at your kids, trying to get them to do stuff. But um, it's the same with the hobby. Like we look back at these models that were pretty much clunkers, but we like have this great admiration for them. <laughs> Which nowadays we we look at it and go, nah, hope in hell, I don't want to fly one of those. But uh, so you, you you got that trainer, well, you built that plane, which I'm still amazed because yeah. not many people have that story where they scratch built their first plane. Okay, if you go back many many years, yeah, but in recent times, anybody sort of in their forties, fifties kind of thing would say that they had a kit and or someone gave them a model, and even the younger generation now say they bought a foamy. Um, yeah. So that 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 really intrigues me now. Then. What was the radio system that you had? You said it a four channel. Futaba, mate, and that's why I'm a Futaba fly through oh, and through for life. Hey, you got a tattoo on your arm. And oh, mate, it's in the blood. I, I honestly, I have never had one major problem with Futaba. So, and I've had oh god, I don't know how many radios now. Probably getting close to ten. Um, and right, you know, from the, the most basic of two-channel AM back when I was 10 years old through to the most sophisticated, which would be the 18MZ now. Um, yeah, I've just had such a good run. I just, you know, people talk to me about, you know, well, you, know you can go this, you can go that, you can do this, you can do that. I just, it, it doesn't even enter my mind, mate, when you've lived it and had such a great experience with it. But, yeah, it's that's what I've like. It's funny with those debates about brands of radios. And my philosophy is this. If it's working for you, then it's fine. Everyone, you know, people will sit and say, there was somebody put on Facebook a question the other day, oh, what should I buy? And it's like, well, if you buy anything, it's going to be fine. And if yeah. it was bad, in today's world, we'd know if there was a brand that had a problem with their radio. Like we'd be at the field watching planes crash all the time. But there is yeah. no major brand out there that's having a lot of issues, um, you know, I, I've spoken to some people in the industry and they tell me that the protocols that the different brands use, they're not extremely sophisticated. A lot of them are open source 2.4 gig protocols, but they just work. Yeah. And so I'm like, you know, you don't need, to, why would you change Futaba from Futaba? If you know it, you know how to program it and it works. And so yeah, the same yeah. thing is like, buy, buy what you like and if it works, stick with it. But I don't think you're going to find a massive dud nowadays, but um, 
But Futaba was that brand, though. Like, I remember in the 80s when I was a kid, like, Futaba was the go-to brand. That was the Rolls-Royce of, um, of radio control gear. Yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly how I remember it. There weren't any... I mean, there, there wasn't as much competition back then as there is now. You certainly didn't have the array of brands and equipment. But, you know, there was at least two or three other majors. But, you know, when you went to a field... And this is my experience. When you went to a field, you looked at the radio stand because they had frequency control and everything. Um, you know, ninety percent was Futaba and ten percent was something else. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, well, and what club were you flying at back then? Like, were you remember the club then, early on? It's it, as again, as I said, it was in Sydney. Um, that club still exists, um, and I think it's actually. The, the the incorporation is the one that runs the club in um, uh, where is it? I've forgotten the name of it. It's where we had the world uh, the the uh, Australian Masters, uh, and uh, but where it was was an area called Kellyville, yeah. and that now has been completely sold off. It was farmland, rural farmland when I was there as a kid, but now it's part of the suburbian sort of uh, explosion so that, I, I reckon in new south wales they've got that challenge where they're short on space and you yeah know, we're, we're sort of fortunate living here in melbourne that an average flying club for a lot of people was anywhere from under an hour to get to really anywhere from you know on average maybe half an hour to 45 minutes like my local club's now 45 minutes away from me my previous club was 30 minutes and, and that kind of thing but i think in new south wales you've got to make a day of it because some, some people if you live in you know sydney you're gonna to have to travel a bit to to get out and battle the traffic of course but uh but you know the scene's still pretty strong though in new south wales um i've actually i've got a, i've got a, another new south wales welshman coming up next on the podcast i'll be interviewing him shortly but uh so you got um so you fly you, so you joined a club and you got in that club environment pretty early on then Yes, and, I did. And so, and how did your first flights go? Because you know, this is pre-simulated days where you can sort of roughly get it. Oh, mate, scary! <laughs> <laughs> the thing didn't fly well. It was ugly. It didn't fly well, and uh, I was inexperienced, obviously. But fortunately, my my uh, mate's dad, very capable, extremely capable, and um, he would do all the tricky stuff. Basically, he'd just give me the transmitter set so I could fly it around and do circuits. Um, and, you know, we did that basically for a year or two, I think. Um, never got to the point where I progressed to the landings and takeoffs. You know, I, I don't know if it was because back then there weren't so many younger guys doing that. Um, but that's how we did it. We'd go out together for a day and they'd do the takeoffs and landings and I'd, I'd fly circuits. And um, after that, as I said, I sort of got interested in cars and, and girls and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, things slowed down. But when I came back to it, I was more so into gliders like Aeroflight kits, um, Rolgers and, and those sorts of things. And and we used to fly off bungees and uh, you could do it with a two or a three channel radio. Still, as I said, Futaba and, and all of that. The Futaba attack radio, two channel. Absolutely, I've still got one. Yeah, uh, yeah. In fact, I've got the four-channel version as well. I've still got the four-channel. Yeah, they're not they're not worth that much nowadays, but they're worth to us. They're worth a lot to us in memories, I think. But uh, a mate of mine's got a, a, a four-channel Futaba radio, the gold, you know, the gold metal case one. Yeah, he said yeah. To me, yeah. Oh, do you reckon it's worth much? And I said, No, not really. 
unfortunately not. Yeah. But brand new condition too. But no. Yeah. Well, look, people might see some nostalgia behind yeah, them for sure. Yeah. Um, and that's what it would be for me too. You know. Um, yeah, I remember them well. Yep. Those Aeroflight yep. kits, they were, I just remember going, I had a, an, I built an Albatross and I've still got an Aries. It needs a bit of repair work, but I've still mm-hmm. got it. And um, it was so good just having Aeroflight. Actually, the first Aeroflight kit I got was a, a Nomad. It was a free flight. Yeah. Um, yeah. A free, free yep. flight thing that I got given as a present to me. But um, yeah, well, they're trying to bring the Aeroflight back, but it, the economics aren't there. It's not like the good old days. But um. But they flew well. Like, and I remember that there was something about we don't see that bungee kind of thing happening. Were you flying at the club with the bungee or just going to a local park? No, that was actually back then. It was, you know, there, there wasn't so much concern for flying that sort of stuff at a big park, like at a sporting facility that had, you know, three or four soccer fields, for example. Um, that was perfect. And that's what we used to do. Um, there was one that was down next to the local tip and uh, it was huge. And we just set up the bungee, usually on a on a, a day where there was no well, always when there was no sporting activity, but usually there was no activity. Period. So we had the whole place to ourselves, and um, next to a river too, which was cool. So yeah, we just uh, set up the bungee, launch them up, look for thermals, and and do all sorts of stuff. And I did that for a good four or five years, I reckon. Yeah, uh, I, I love. Um, I really do have a passion for gliders. Uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 something. It's it's that it's like fishing. You know, you don't know whether the fish are there. So you don't know whether the thermals there. And there's yeah, you live in hope. And I I like that. I like you know living in hope. And oh, maybe I might catch something. And maybe if I go over here, it might work. But looking back on those days, those the, we'll call them the Aeroflight days, the glider days, and the bungee launches. Yep. Oh, I've got so many good memories. Like it, I just feel good thinking about it. That I used to come down here at Elstonwick Park. I used to live in sort of down Bayside area down here in Melbourne. And, and El- Elstonwick Park, I remember turning up one day. I don't know whether we were driving past something the family and I said to my dad, stop. There are people flying gliders there. And I remember these gliders that were, they were big. And yep. they were on the bungee. And I was just sitting there going, this is just unbelievable. Do you? Yep. Here's a question for you. When you're driving through the countryside, Yep. If you look out and go, gee, that'd be a great paddock to fly a glider from. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, I've been doing that since I was a kid. I still do it. Yeah. yeah. still I, do and, it. And, and all the different disciplines too. I think, you know, if I'm on driving down the coast, you know, yeah. and I think, wow, I wish I had a slope sorter with me, you know. Like, <sighs> perfect, you know. Um, yeah, all sorts of things. And I often picture in my mind now that, especially now, and a fairly early memory of uh, getting into pattern was having an airframe that I had ready. Um, I just had to put the engine in and get it into the air. And something that motivated me to do it, like to really just go home and do it, was I was driving on a long trip and I was on this gun barrel highway and it was just open space. And, uh, you know, I I was probably uh, not doing quite the speed I should have been. And, And I was just sort of thinking, just imagine that airframe right next to you now uh, with the big YS in it because it, back then the big YS was the 140FZ um, and opening the throttle and watching it accelerate away from the car. And uh, and that was it, mate. I got home and I got that thing in the air. See, <laughs> do you know what I always say that we aeromodelers have, have vivid imaginations that – 
We need to, but we need that because I don't think you could stay in the hobby if you didn't. And you no, know, for example, that vision of what it's going to be like to fly that plane keeps us yep. going through the building phase and all that kind of stuff. That's why we keep on buying other models is we fall in love with the look of it and then we imagine what it's going to be like. And and it's the same with cars. Imagine if I had that Ford yep. GT, what it's going to be like driving that car. You know, I got into Formula Ford car racing and to me it was yep. that single-seater experience. Imagine what it was like sitting in that, what it would be like sitting in that single-seater purpose-built race car. It's like a fighter jet. And and it was that that I fell in love with, with the, with the idea and yep. you know, whereas you know, I take someone like my older brother. He has no imagination for that kind of stuff. And and I've got friends. It's almost like it has to be in front of me, and I have to consume it now. I can't sit there and wait yep. three months before I actually do it. But that passion that we've got and that vision that we've got—that's the common thread. And they you know when people talk about um, how to get kids involved in the hobby. Well, not every kid is like that. It's only certain no. kids that are like that. That is why there yeah. is a recurring story. That's why I always laugh. Women and cars came on the scene. Well, it's always the same story for everybody that's involved in aero modeling. <laughs> and it's not cars, it's motorbikes, um, fishing, all those yeah. kind of things that take an effort. And yeah. my life is just full of that. There is not one activity that I've done that doesn't involve some level of learning or attainment of skill. Yeah. So yeah. we're all the same, but it's good to see that you know, you're a proper aero modeler. You, you, you've got that ability to have that vision. Now, so at what age did you then get back into the hobby? And then what did it look like when you, well, you, you got back in through the gliding thing. What age would you have been then? That would have been my early 20s. And um, that was a bit hit and miss only because, or on and off, so to speak, yep. simply because I, at the same time, buying my first house and, and working pretty hard. So, um, yeah, up until I was about, I mucked around with the gliders and, and a, a few lightweight electrics, admittedly, but back then it was brushed, uh, brushed with. Um, and that was up until I was about 30. And I got an offer to come to Melbourne and take on a national role with a, a fairly big company, and which worked out quite well. Uh, I took that on, came down with the family, relocated. And one of the things I said to myself in part of doing this I'm going to get seriously back into the aeroplanes because I just can't stop thinking about that that thought that I've had since I was two or three years old, and I just want to make the most of that. And so when we settled in Melbourne, I became a member of the Doncaster Club, um, joined up, got proper training, got my solo, bronze wings, uh, went on later on to get um, uh, gold wings, instructor ratings and all that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, when I when I started with Doncaster, it was nor what you would call normal flying with a with a trainer, so a forty size, uh, you know, boomerang type uh, airframe, OS forty six LA, uh, Futaba radio again, and it was still the one that I'd been using for the last fifteen years. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, got properly taught. Um, and as soon as I was solo, I just felt the need to be doing it. You mentioned the Doncaster Club, and that Doncaster Club down here in, in Melbourne has really fostered a lot of great pilots. Like, there's, there's a list along my arm of people that have uh, come from come from that club. And a lot of people that have been on this podcast, like David Law. And, uh, yep. and uh, who was the person that really was mentoring you back in those days? And I've got the, I've got the name in my mind. We'll see if it uh, correlates. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I think you're going to be surprised um, because the name in your mind is, is definitely one of them and probably the most significant. But the one that started me was Jason Bruce. Now, Jason Bruce was, uh, or still is as far as I know, I, I haven't stayed in touch with him, but a very capable pilot, flew aerobatics and everything. But he sort of got me trained up, uh, got me to bronze wings and all that sort of stuff. But in parallel, the guy you're thinking of, Cliff McIver, um, I'm assuming it was a Cliff or... You're a mind reader. <laughs> um, he was, you know, he was right into that club and, and you know, all facets of, of uh, error modelling. So um, he had a big influence, mate. He was very helpful, very supportive. And uh, I, maybe he could see something, I don't know. But um, he, uh, he was, before I joined the club, I watched him fly pattern. He had, uh, what was it? It was a, it was a locally designed and manufactured uh, club. Might have come out of the uh, model. Sorry, might have come out of the Lilydale uh, club guys. I can't remember, um, but I just saw it and I heard it and I just thought, wow, that's slick, you know. And he uh, did a schedule with it. And there was a few other guys there, like Graham Kay and Boss Student, who had model of similar sort of uh, design. Um, and that really got me in and I thought, well, that's not something I can jump straight into. So let's get taught, let's get capable and let's think about going that direction. So that was, you know, in the time that I was sort of 30, 31 or around the time I was 30, 31. Cliff, yeah. Cliff um, really uh, you know, mentored a lot of pilots, especially in aerobatics and and, he, you know, he still flies today. And, and when you see him fly, he's still a really good pilot. That, and I always say that, you know, if you, if, you, if you practice a discipline like IMAC or F3A early in your life, it will keep you a good pilot till the day you die. Like I, can, yeah. I, I know 80-year-old guys that were involved in the pattern scene years and years ago, and they are still really clean, precise pilots. Yeah. So they've got that muscle memory. So. Yeah, young guy uh, that was on the podcast last week in Harrison, uh, yep. and he's getting into pattern now, and he's fifteen or something like that. And I said to him, "Buddy, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be a good pilot for the rest of your life if you keep this up." You know, like yep. he's learning yeah. whilst he's young, and they you know what the kids are like. But um, but yeah, so the, and that the, the channel with Doncaster is is the flying space. It's a pretty small flying space. Um, how did you go flying in the small area that Doncaster covers? Uh, not too bad, really. I mean, it was really just familiarisation. When you understood there was goes and no-go zones, um, that you just had to really cement that in your mind and and work within the, the those parameters. Um, learning them was hard, for sure. But, you know, once you did that, and, and as far as the pattern side of things goes, understanding where the pattern line was, and, uh, not, you know, flying beyond it in any direction, um, yeah, that, that, that was okay. And I think there's just so much discipline and precision died up, tied up in F3A uh, that you get very capable at that. It's a natural thing. I think it's, you know, I was, I was saying to someone the other day, a friend of mine, I said, there's a level of expectation that you have of yourself when you fly a discipline like F3A or if you're at scale competition, yeah. any competition, there's a level of expectation on, on how you need to perform. And even if yep. you're not going to be the best F3A pilot there, you know that when you take off, what is an acceptable 
you know, what is an acceptable maneuver? How should it be flown? So, for example, I will do a stall turn, and when I stuff it up, I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm kicking myself. I was like, no, I stuffed that up because it's not supposed to look like that. Whereas a lot of pilots may not have that level of expectation themselves. Like they'll just, you know, do the stall turn where the plane actually doesn't stall. They sort of like fly it over the top kind of thing. And that's okay for them, which is, you know, each to their own. But um, I, I think that when you've got that level of expectation on yourself on how the plane must look, you're automatically going to improve your flying. Did you find that was the case with, with, with you and F3A? Oh, mate, 100%. Uh, absolute. You know, like it's about... Um, precision, accuracy, and true to the word, you know, like a stall turn has a heading or has a definition. Um, and, you know, as you say, it. some people are more than happy just to fly like a sportish style of flying and just go and, and you know, get the nose to go over and, and fly it through and, and that's okay. But, you know, a proper stall turn is a very, very well-engineered, executed uh, sequence. They've a lot of control to make it right. And, um, yeah, I, I just think it, it probably sounds a bit elitist, and, I, and, and that's one thing that I don't like about it, but it's not that it's elitist. It's that you are being judged on every single moment, every single input you make, every single thing that the, the model does in every second of travel um that it has to be as close to perfect as possible if it's not it's going to get it down and so it should yeah yeah and it's it's right that there's i find it funny you use the word elitist and and it's it's almost like you feel guilty for you know flying pad because people they create they conjure up these image of the stereotype of what an f3i pilot is you know they're the formula one drivers that take everything seriously and they think they're really good and all this kind of stuff and I, it yep. just fascinates me how things like that happen. But it it happens around a lot of different disciplines, like the jet people that like turbine jets. Oh, those group of people they think they're really good because they've got these expensive jets and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, no, they just like flying jets. And the people yep. that like flying aerobatics like flying aerobatics, and the people that like flying F3A like to, you know, that that whole process of learning, being judged, and trying to be as accurate as possible is. Yep. You know, some to some people it's addictive. A friend of mine was telling me he's, he's in the IMAX scene, and he said to me, "IMAX has become an addiction for him. That it's that striving for perfection yeah. that that he's still fascinated with. That he's not there yet, and never probably will be there a hundred percent. But he loves that journey of, and he's addicted to that journey of trying to get better, even down to." the detail of the, the the models that he's flying and wing incidents and tail moments and all this kind of stuff in trying to get to that level of perfection. Yep. It just we'll talk about practicing and how much time it takes, but huh. just going backwards a little bit, you you got inspired by seeing the likes of Cliff and others fly pattern planes. Yep. How quickly did you move into and, and I'm assuming they were like classic what we'd call classic pattern planes? Well, that's literally about 20 years ago. So you're talking about the era era of what looked like classic models, but they were two metre. Yeah. Okay. So, so things like the Safio, um, that was a very popular airframe back then. Um, I've seen some of the classic pattern planes fly and it amazed me how fast they are. Eddie Edwards once, I was out in the field with him and he was a great pattern pilot in the day and... 
I said to him, Eddie, I've never seen a plane go vertical that fast. And he said, I'm at half throttle. I said, what? Yeah. He said, and he just turned around and said, that's how we flew back in the day. Yeah. And, you know, super slippery, like sharp as a, you know, an arrow. Uh, so it would cut through the air and serious, serious horsepower up front. Um, and, yeah, that's how they were. And, you know, they were sort of getting into the state. It was sort of going through the phase where it was changing from that classic, really pointed, slick, uh, classic design to the fatter, more buoyant airframes that had a lot of efficiency built into them so that they could do all kinds of sequences and mainly the knife edge performance. Um, we're not just talking straight knife edge, we're talking knife edge in manoeuvres. So whether that's a, you know, a Cuban 8 or, you know, a rolling loop or, or whatever it is, um, the ability to maintain um, attitude and uh, trajectory in the most compromised sort of position, if you know what I mean. And that's that's what was sort of happening at the time. And, and the airframe I'm talking about, you just mentioned Eddie Edwards. Um, I'm not sure who designed this because I got it off the guy that worked with him, a guy by the name of Keith Chiller, uh, but it was a javelin. And I'm sure the two of those worked together with them. I'm not sure who the actual designer was, but they definitely both flew them. Um, and uh, this one was a two meter. And as I said, it took a YS140. Um, I got that very, very cheap. It had done a lot of work, but it still had plenty left in it and looked great. Um, and that was the airframe that, that I had, a two-meter Javelin Futaba radio with a YS-140 in it. Yeah, I think I think Eddie had a Javelin. I saw him fly a Javelin. But, um, and so did you enter into competitions early on or, or what was that time frame between sort of getting into the aerobatics and learning sequence to going to your first comp? Well, I, I started flying the Javelin and it was quite a different aeroplane to fly. I mean, honestly, it did. When you're starting and you go from your typical 40 size sport, 40 or 60 size sport model or trainer to something as efficient as a pattern model, it's literally like going from, you know, your daily driver, whether that's a little, you know, five door sort of Japanese, Chinese hatchback to an F1 car. Um, the difference is just amazing. They are so efficient. One thing I always found hard was, which uh, might sound ridiculous, but the most difficult thing for me at the time was the landing because if you came in with any kind of energy on board like you would with a normal model, mate, you would land three miles away. The yeah, things... yeah, yeah. No, it's like... Oh. Well, yeah. I've got a, a like a, a Sebart Mythos 50 size pattern plane and uh, and most of my other aircraft are like freestyle aerobatic kind of models and 3D models and the 3D models, you, you back off and they just slow up straight away. But that yep. Sebart Mythos, you have to set it up. Or I've I've done that many go arounds with that plane because I just have this trouble going from something like the freestyle plane to the pattern plane because it just keeps on going. But um, yep. I'm getting better at it though. I'm starting to, to sort of dial myself into the into the, the airframe. So I'm sort of judging it. But so yeah, what, what was your first comp like? Well, interestingly, I didn't want to fly the Javelin. Um, and that was probably a mis mistake with hindsight. But, oh, mate, my first comp was scary. Um, it was at Nepean. Uh, it was with a super sportster that had a Sato 65 in it. Um, it went really well. It was a great flying model. But, you know, doing an outside loop, for example, and you're doing it from the top, right? 
So in other words, you're flying along, straight line, and okay, the rule book says you've got to push the nose straight at the ground now, <laughs> you know, and then when you want to recover it, you're going through an outside loop. In other words, when you're, you're transitioning from dead vertical down to, you know, 45 degrees down, um, that's going to be upside down, right? It's got to be inverted. So you just got to rely on the physics and just keep pushing that down elevator. And it will recover. Don't jam it. You'll stall it. But, you know, just keep using down elevator. Just make a conscious uh, effort to just keep pushing that down elevator. And, mate, that was scary. And, you know, <laughs> I've watched so many people do it when they're starting. And you can just tell because it... You know, they gently nudge the nose down. Then all of a sudden, the bottom of the loop flattens out because they're jamming that elevator. They just want to be upside down and they don't want to be anywhere near the ground. And, and you know, it's a natural reaction. We're all human. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that first comp was pretty scary and my scores reflected that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think my best score might have been a five or a six out of ten. Well, that changed over the years. And so have you kept have you kept up that passion for F3A all along, like till to today, from those days to today, or did it sort of wax and wane a bit? Pretty much. It was a bit of a stumbly start because, um, as I said, the, uh, the model I flew was the Super Sportster. Um, and it wasn't a, a, you know, it was a hot sort of sporty model, but it's not certainly not a, a pattern aeroplane. Um, and that was okay. Had fun with it, etc. Um, but uh, the I really enjoyed flying the Javelin, but unfortunately I had a, a, a bad incident with it. I had a dead stick on my final approach and I was flying at Lilydale and that was right over the swamp. <laughs> um, and I couldn't get back to the strip. I was flying fine, but... It, fell short literally of the strip by about 20 metres and just went into the reeds. Um, and it wasn't worth repair. It was repairable. Anything is repairable, but it wasn't worth repairing that. So after that happened, I had the bug. Um, I liked it. So I, um, uh, at the time, uh, got a Maestro 140 uh, kit, which was the same sort of vintage as your Desafios or the next generation, I suppose. Still very much a... I guess a stretched classic looking design, uh, two meter. Stuck the YS in it, did a bit of work with that. Um, but still, I the model that I really, I, I when I started to use proper pattern designs for competition, I started with smaller models. Um, so 40 size, 60 size, 90 size. I had a Bravo, which was pretty good. Um, that was a thing out of China. It was a 60 size, but you could put a 94 stroke in it if you wanted um, and a few others. And they were the sorts of things that I used to at least get through sportsman and probably into advanced, sort of halfway through advanced. Um, but then it got serious. As I said, I had the maestro. I'd been practicing with that. Um, and I then got a... Um, uh, I can't remember the name of the model now. There's been that many, but it was a t another two meter that I set up really, really well with the OS 140RX, Futaba radio, long pipe, and all that sort of stuff. And that's when it got serious because I was more comfortable flying that 
at one stage I lost the Maestro too. I have to mention that. So that wasn't uh, worth repairing. So the the next one that I got that I can't remember if I started using that in advance or expert. It was one or the other. But that's when it got serious because that airframe was so capable and the power plant was just, you know, flat out horsepower. Um, and I could do the sequence so much easier. Um, and then I, you know, I went through airframe, airframes like most modelers do. But from that point, I have to say, they weren't losses. They were more so just moving on to a newer type or something a bit better or, you know, um, a, a slightly different design or a more current design, whatever it was. Uh, so, yeah, and that, you know, evolution of airframes through that period was was huge. And I think from going to advanced up to F3A level or masters, well, certainly masters, I probably went through at least uh, five or six different designs and, um, you know, Kept some of them, sold some of them, you know, lost the odd one, but mostly either kept or sold. Yeah. It's, oh, you mentioned that there's just been a lot of evolution of the design. When you see a modern day pattern ship there, you know, some of them look like ugly ducklings, but they're, they're designed for a purpose. Uh, I love the look of them. I'm a big fan of uh, pattern, pattern models and the way that they look. And also the way that they yep. fly. It's amazing. You know, I flew, I flew that, that mythos that I've got, a few weekends ago and I hadn't flown it for a number of years. It, it actually, I had, a, had to repair it. it or a friend of mine repaired it for me actually after a bit of an incident with a wire fence on landing. But um, it flew, It's I, I said, I landed and went, that's like cheating. This plane makes me look good. It's that good. And and that, that precise, is, it's just amazing. My rolls look spectacular with this model kind of thing. And and a lot of it's just in that design of the, of the airframe. So yeah. fast forwarding to sort of, today how yep. important is it to choose the right model like are, are there a lot of differences between a 2017 model versus a 2020 model yeah look this is a hard question to answer because yes there are but whether or not you can make it do what it's capable of that's a totally different one um now i would say uh that the airframe that that people would recognize that that I have experience with uh, is an Oxide Pinnacle. Uh, that was the first move in the direction of the bigger, wider body, more capable knife edge uh, uh, characteristics were great uh, for the time anyway. And then moving on from there to the later designs uh, after that, I think it was the Beryl. Um, I had a, a Pegasus when I fin finally went uh, electric. Um, uh, I've had the uh, big mythos. Uh, um, I had the. I actually had the custom version of that as well, which is still around. I sold it to uh, Russell Edwards, um, and that one is a special order from um, the factory only. You can't get them through the distributors. Uh, it's a fully painted model, ultra lightweight, um, same basic design, but finished in a way that the pros would like, so that they can use it comfortably. Um, and not worry about weight. It was super light. It came in at about, with batteries, it came in at about 4.6, 4.65. Um, and, uh, yeah, those types of airframes right up until now. Um, I, I went after the the uh, Pegasus. I went um, onto the Accuracy, um, our Super Fanta sister. 
Um, and now, uh, by far the best that I've flown um, is the Ascent, which is a generation old now. That's been overtaken by the Advantage. But um, the Ascent is uh, what they produced, uh, what Naruki designed and was produced by Haiyang or what people commonly known as Oxai uh, for the 2017 season uh, and World Championship. And that biplane is just awesome. What it can like you say, it makes me look good. It definitely. It's interesting this, uh, you know, this combination that you see monoplanes and biplanes in F three A. What is the benefit of a biplane in F three A? It locks in in different ways. Um, it would have to be. I, I'm I'm pretty sure that most people would say they would have to be doing the more difficult stuff that involves rolling and knife edge elements uh, that they where they really come into their own. That said, though, uh, the monoplanes are so good now with um, the canalizers and you know the bigger bodies and and the huge rudders and 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 fins and tall fuselage and all that sort of stuff that. The, the the difference is probably not that great. In fact, with the latest designs, it's hard to say if it's even there. It might be just a case of what you actually prefer. Uh, but definitely, um, when this generation of sort of biplanes started really evolving four or five years ago, um, what you could notice was that you know you got to do a flat rolling circle. It was a lot easier to keep the shape right, the altitude right, the roll rate right everything just became easier i think and i've even heard you know really good pilots talk about this stuff and some will disagree with me of course everybody's got different opinions but um i've even heard certain pilots say and and you know world-class pilots say gee flying with this biplane is cheating well it's well it's not cheating because everybody's got access to it if they want to pay the money to have that have that model and um, exactly but how often like at what point do you decide to upgrade your model well, uh, look, that's that's a result of lots of decisions and, and lots of circumstances. I guess it depends on you know where you are at life, how much you can afford, and, and what you're actually doing. Whether you're you're flying just for fun, going to the occasional competition, or if you're flying at a you know high level competition, and you want to represent the country, which is you know an amazing thing to do, a, a, an honour, a privilege, um, primarily more than anything else, which just I actually feel inside. And uh, and if you want to shoot for that, then you've got to be thinking modern airframes because the guys you're flying against who want to do the same thing are probably doing that too. And the latest airframes definitely give you an edge. It might be a small edge, but every edge in pattern counts. If you can get a point on one manoeuvre, that is huge. You know, that's a 10% improvement on one manoeuvre. So, you know, if you want to fly at that level, if you want to be ultra competitive, as I said, you want to, you know, if you're lucky enough to, to have that honour to represent the country and, and go overseas, um, you want to be able to get as much in, in out of the flying as you possibly can. And if uh, the latest airframe gives you 2 or 3% um, improvement, then it's worth it. It's like car racing. Really, you know, you got to be in the right car to, to even have a chance to to win a lot of uh, a lot of races. Now, 
I just want to have a little bit of a deep dive about um, flying F3A sequences. So for, for anybody that doesn't know what F3A sort of sequences look like, it, they're basically uh, a sequence is a series of uh, prescribed maneuvers. There are different categories like in IMAC, you know, yep. sportsmen's all the way to the F3A top level masters kind of, kind of category. And, yep. you know, it is all about precision. So, you know, when it comes to the aim, is it is it solely about precision or is there something else that comes into it as well from a judging criteria? Well, if you, if you, if you consider all aspects of precision, yes, it is about that. When I say that, predominantly what, what you just described, people look at and they say, okay, well, that's a shape in the sky. Okay, and yeah, that's right. That's a shape in the sky. You're flying a, a loop, which is a circle. You're flying a square loop, which is a box or a square. You're flying a figure eight, which is an eight. Um, you know, you, you do a top hat. It actually looks like a top hat. It's a, it's a uh, you know, a sequence of straight lines that doesn't have a bottom line. It has an entry line, a vertical, a top line, a down line, then an exit line. Um, so, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. You're flying shapes, but where precision comes in, I can talk about the generalizations of controlling your airspeed, controlling your depth, in other words, how far away the aeroplane is from the pilot and the judges, um, controlling your height, your base height, that you don't go too low in your base height and you don't go too high in your base height. And that when you do the eye, um, they are equal. The first one is the same size as the second one, same size as the third one, same size as the fourth one, same size and shape, everything. Um, so they are elements that are controlled with, um, you know, the, the, the precise inputs that you put in and ultimately look precise. But there are so many more subtle areas that have to be done precisely to shoot a good score, especially on a world standard. And that is where you really see the difference. And and it's the finesse. It's the absolute control of airspeed. So in other words, as a model is climbing through a radius in a 90 degree turn going up into a vertical versus the opposite, where it's coming out at the end of the manoeuvre, it's being pulled out to a horizontal from a vertical downline. And you cannot pick a single difference in the airframe's airspeed or progression. That, that's not the plane doing that. That's the pilot. And a lot of people look at the thing and say, wow, I've got to get one of those models because it can do that. And they're right, it can do that. But it doesn't mean it will unless you learn that level of precision. And when it comes to roll rates, you know, not only do you want it to be smooth and constant, it has to be at the right speed. And what's the right speed? Well, it's not too slow and it's not too fast. It needs to look like it's effortless and the, the entry, in other words, the start of the roll and the end of the roll has to be super crisp and clean and instantaneous. And if you can manage the role like that and do that in the middle of each straight section of that manoeuvre and make them all look identical, that's another element of precision. Okay, so 
It's being able to break down manoeuvres into a sequence of movements and each one is a manoeuvre on itself, in itself, I should say. That each radius is a manoeuvre. Each roll is a manoeuvre. Each part of knife edge flight is a manoeuvre. Everything you do is an individual element and those individual element elements are manoeuvres in themselves and they combine to make the full manoeuvre. So it, it is, you know, when we say precision, the more you do it, the more you learn, and then the more you do it, and the more you learn again. And it's just a snowball effect. That doesn't stop it. It, it hasn't stopped for me yet. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's how the precision element, for me, um, that's my perception. Well, I, I suppose management of the airspace is critical. And when you talk about airspace, you know, we're not always flying in perfectly still conditions. Uh, no. How... How are you, you know, have you got any tools in your trick bag that help you manage airspace, you know, especially when you're flying in wind? Yes, absolutely. Now, there's some basic stuff. And, you know, if it depends what sort of wind, obviously. Um, the thing is, the trick is, it doesn't matter what sort of wind it is. And this is something that you see with the highest level pilots is it doesn't matter what the conditions are. They make it look the same. Okay, they make it look the same. The only thing that you might notice is for the whole flight, they might fly a bit faster, okay, because it helps the model penetrate. But that's not necessarily the case. It depends on the pilot and their setup. But as far as flying in wind goes, if it's a crosswind, you should be very, very conscious of your drift. And people assume if the, if the wind is coming from behind your back, and pushing in an outward direction, that naturally the aeroplane is gonna to wanna to fly away from you. In other words, it's gonna get deeper, further. That's not true. That is not true. And you will find that the more you fly because what happens is it depends on how much impact that crosswind is having on the yaw of the fuselage. If it's pushing it hard enough, it's gonna push the tail out, which is gonna point the nose towards you right? And that's going to make the model fly in. So you've got to remember that and you've got to be conscious of, okay, I'm flying in a crosswind. Is it going to drift in or is it going to drift out? I'm always going to be yawing, but how am I going to be correcting? I'm going to, am I going to be needing left inputs or right inputs on the rudder? And, you know, the rudder is probably the most worked control uh, on a pattern model. Um, so you've got to be conscious of that fact, okay, crosswind, it's out. Decide quickly whether I'm drifting in or out naturally. So in your takeoff and turnaround and, you know, free part of the flight until you do the first manoeuvre, you're watching very closely to see what the aeroplane's doing. Is it drifting in or out? Okay, if it's drifting in, I know the, the crosswind is strong enough to really crank up the yaw the natural yaw in the airframe, therefore I need to be correcting constantly in an outward um, uh, control or with an outward control. If it's not, if it's uh, drifting out, well, then it's the opposite. But you've got to decide that quickly and, and keep, uh, sort of be conscious of it right through. Whereas if the, if the wind is straight up and down the strip, it's a different ball game. The flying, the flying will be fairly straight and parallel. But when you're flying into the wind, you're going to have a lot more trouble. Um, you won't be able to penetrate as fast. 
um, it'll rise and, and, and climb and everything okay and descend well and everything, you'll be able to control that. But when you're flying directly into them, you can't penetrate as much. Whereas you do your turnaround and you're flying with the wind, the thing accelerates like mad. So, you know, if you're on the same throttle setting, you, you, you will fly past the centre of the box and overshoot your manoeuvre. So, you know, straight away, you know, right, when I'm flying with the wind and I'm getting accelerated by the wind, I've got to be off the throttle. I've got to be not. I've got to be very conscious that I penetrate into the wind as far as I can, get a manoeuvre in, and then turn around and expect the thing to come back like it's been shot out of a slingshot, and still be able to maintain that good airspeed, but don't go too fast, and certainly don't go past the the manoeuvring zone in the centre. Well, the the level of concentration that you'd have to maintain. Is amazing. You know, yep. One a guy that we know, Paul Marlon, uh, you know, friend of ours, said yep. uh, one day to me that when he was really involved in the in the F three A scene and he was practicing, he had an outer body experience where he was flying the model, but it was as if he was standing behind his own body, watching yep. him fly the plane. He said he was just that intense level of concentration. Do you have to get into that zone when you're competing? Like, you know, do you have to prepare and just find some some stillness to to to, to focus, or does it just come naturally to you? Yeah, look, mate, that that's the zone you're looking for, um, and I completely agree with Paul. He's told me the same. He's a great guy, and he and he's one of the guys that I I had a lot of time with and uh, have a lot of respect for too. And he told me that same story, and that was actually at a masters, which was really good for him because. That's when you need it the most, um, when you're right in front of those judges and at, and at the highest level. So, um, yes, that is what you are looking for, and how you achieve that is, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I would agree absolutely that it's an out-of-body experience, and, and, and where you're referencing from, like whether you're standing behind yourself or you're in the sky watching or whatever it is, to give you an idea, I reckon a bomb could go off behind you and it wouldn't matter. It, it's, you are in a different element. You are so focused and dialed in and tuned to the aeroplane. Nothing else is entering your mind. It doesn't matter if people try and tell you something, you won't hear it. Um, and people who know me well have seen me in the last few years, in a lot of occasions, I fly without a caller. And the reason for that is that the caller is nothing more than a distraction at that point. If the caller says something, it actually breaks some of the communication that I'm feeling between me and the aeroplane. So I don't want to hear anything, even though I know I might be making a mistake and I know he could be helping me correct it. I've probably already picked up on it anyway. Yeah, so I, I'd be the same as you, I think. I think that having that caller there would just, it's almost like now I'm performing for the, the caller where instead of myself and I just, I, you know, I, I, I dare say that everybody's competing in, 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 in pattern has memorized the sequence. If they haven't, then obviously they haven't done enough practice. So the necessity of a caller sometimes, you know, maybe some people like that coaching that the, the caller can give, but I'm probably sitting yep. more closer to your, your way of thinking. 
I, I actually prefer the critique that you get afterwards. So if I've got someone like a caller standing behind me, I'll actually say, watch the flight. Don't say anything unless it's really, really obvious or critical if I'm constantly missing, missing centres or something. But watch the flight so that we talk about the whole flight from takeoff to landing after the flight because I want a big perspective on this. I want to know where, you know, I'm assuming that, you know, most of the elements are okay. But if, for example, you know, I've, I've had a lot, fortunately, I've had a lot of good coaches, mate. I've, I've had, you know, a lot of good mentors, uh, the likes of the Bill Bloodworths, the Glen Orchards, you know, uh, Bill's dad, you know, Tom, who's got a wealth of experience in pattern, um, Cliff McIver, Ian Bendel, um, you know, lots of other guys, and a lot of the guys that I fly with just generally too, Dave Gibbs, uh, Fernando Mong. So, you know, these guys will give you really good quality feedback, real perspective about what's right and wrong, and be able to say, you know, you might be making the overall flight too long or too short, or you might be flying too big or too small or too close or too far out, or, you know, it's not so much that the manoeuvres are compromised, but it's not right for this reason and this affects your whole sequence and therefore the whole score so you know i think a caller is great especially when you're not particularly familiar and and this can happen even with the high level guys say for example um we fly p schedule all the time but when you fly f which is the final schedule um that's far more complex and not flown much in local competition certainly flown always at international competition um, and potentially unknowns as well. If you're going to do well in the finals, you'll be flying unknowns. So then you'll be relying on your call-up, giving you, you know, inputs as to what's next and how to execute it and all that sort of stuff. So you've got to maintain the ability to fly with a caller, but when you're flying the stuff that you know inside out, um, I think it's better to, for me anyway, to fly without a caller, but to get some really good quality feedback. So I'll actually ask a couple of the guys, you know, if they're at the field, I'll just say, hey, guys, I'm going to have a flight and I'm going to make it my best. I really want your opinion on the whole flight. So if you, if you don't mind, sit behind me, watch it, and then tell me what you think. And that, that's really useful. Well, that brings me to a question regarding practicing for F3A. What is your approach? Do you, when you're learning a new sequence, um, you know, when a new sequence comes out, are you going manoeuvre by manoeuvre or do you try to, you know, practice in a simulator to learn the maneuvers and then execute the whole entire sequence, you know, and then also the feedback that you're, you're seeking, you know, what is your regime? So I guess um, for me, I've, I've used sims. Definitely. I've definitely flown simulators and uh, I've still got one. And sometimes I haven't used it for a while now, but sometimes I'll just use it for a bit of fun, but I have at various times in the past, used them to fly and learn the very tricky or the very difficult maneuvers. We had a, a maneuver that was a flat triangle. Um, so set a maneuver, flat triangle, and each one of the turns had an integrated half roll and all the horizontals were knife edge. So, you know, you, uh, that was pretty complex because, because it was a cross-box maneuver. You're flying from fairly close in to a long way out. And you've got to get the angles on those lines right, their knife edge, and you're integrating a half roll in the turn. So that was tough. And lots of people made 
lots of mess with that manoeuvre, not damaging their models, but just made the manoeuvre look terrible and I was one of them. So I, I recall that was one where I, I used the sim to improve things um, and certainly get more comfortable about all the, the, the complexity of the inputs. Um, but in recent times, I think it through manoeuvre by manoeuvre and Mate, I, you know, for me, practice isn't necessarily at the field. It'll be while I'm running a production line, uh, making corn chips, I'll be thinking, right, the first manoeuvre is a vertical eight with a half roll in the entry line and a half roll in the exit line. So I'm picturing this manoeuvre and what my hands will be doing as I execute this manoeuvre. And I do it in my mind, eyes closed, and I'm watching the aeroplane, and I'm watching it get blown around, attacked by the wind, um, accelerating in, you know, downwind, and, and all those sorts of things, and being pushed around, and how I'm correcting that, and I'm taking the same amount of time in my mind as I would take to, to physically execute that manoeuvre with the model. I'm flying it through every element, um, and then I've got the short break until the next manoeuvre, which is the turnaround. Uh, and on that particular sequence, it's a stall turn. So same thing. I'll fly that stall turn in my mind. And that mental practice is as important probably as anything else because it's manoeuvre manoeuvre. It's element by element and it's understanding what follows what and what to do in given situations if you can think about it enough. You know, pull all of, all of your experience and think, okay, I can remember flying stall turns and usually a turnaround manoeuvre and, you know, how much the model yours and how much it flies back at you and you don't realise until you're sort of a fair way into the vertical and you realise that on the down line, I'm too close to centre and I haven't got enough room to complete the manoeuvre as well as be on centre for the next manoeuvre and all those sorts of things and, and how you maintain and, and control that. So... It really is element by element, manoeuvre by manoeuvre, until you get it right in your head, and then the same sort of approach at the field as well. Yeah, the I really love that. I think the biggest takeaway for me from hearing what you just said was the timing, that when you close your eyes and you go through that manoeuvre, you're slowing everything down, because I think sometimes we rush when we fly, but getting that timing right and pacing your your stick movements um, so that it, 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 like the way that I see pattern is it's got to be this controlled, stable pace, not some frantic kind of thing. And by slowing yep. it down in your mind, then when you get to the field, that's what you're working towards. It's like, you know, when you go and play a, a, a song, you know, if you're a musician that every song has its own sort of tempo and, and you practice the song at that tempo, you know, once you, you get proficient at it. And it's the same sort of with that pattern thing. And that's, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that. You know, like I'm a big fan of, I don't think I've got time to compete in pattern, but I love the, the precision of it and put together my own kind of sequences. And even if I'm, you know, trying not to rush those, I'm going to work on that visualization a lot more because I think that would be extremely beneficial for, for a lot of us that are flying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I'm glad. I'm, I'm, it feels good hearing that. I mean, sometimes I think, gee whiz, sometimes I'm putting too much into this, you know, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going overboard. But I guess, you know, each to our own and, and we all learn in different ways and that's certainly what I do. So, and, and one of the other things I get, one of the other things, like it's, you sort of mentioned, touched on this before, 
this might be what you do mostly, but there's so many other things in the hobby as well. And for me, high performance electrics, gliders, you know, F5B, slope soaring, good thermal, F5J, F3J, um, all that stuff. I've got those and, and iMac models too. You know, I I fly all of those things as well. And I'm, you know, going way back to those first early, early thoughts and, and how gliders can maintain flight on their own. Um, you know, I still do all of that. And it when I'm doing that, I actually find it frees up mind space so I can think better about the next pattern flight. Yeah, that, that's interesting because, you know, there's, I was talking to, you mentioned Glenn Orchard and, and Glenn has sort of taken a bit of a break from, you know, he was one of the, Australia's best pattern pilots really for the past number of so many years. And he, he said to me once that he just needs a break from it because when he's flying pattern, it's just all consuming kind of thing. And so we've seen him fly iMac models and scale models and jets and you name it. And he's really, really enjoyed just getting his mind away from it because it is just all consuming in a, in a kind of way. And that's part of my battle is that level of concentration. I I think I've got ADHD. I, I can't focus long enough, but the um, that's why I've got so many different, facets now i've got an f5j glider now i haven't flown it yet but i've got it during the COVID break and that's ready to go um looking forward to getting that up in the air but the i just want to talk a bit about your f3a world champs experience because uh, like you mentioned that it's a special thing to be able to represent your country and and to me i look at people that have flown for australia and have a lot of admiration for them that to me, that is a major achievement in your life to be able to do that. And yes, we're talking about flying model airplanes here, but to fly F3A at World Champs is also very, very, very hard to just get into the team to compete. And so uh, the likes of yourself and Glenn and uh, Bloodworth and all these kind of guys that have had a crack at it, and Aaron Gall now is really keen on it, that I really look up to you guys and, you know, you should feel proud of the the effort that you made to give yourself the opportunity to even turn up to one of those world champs. What was that world champ experience like for you? Uh, nothing short of absolutely amazing. Um, for me, primarily, the the honour and the privilege just gives me this warm feeling inside. You know, it, it's um, you know, you think, well, that's doesn't as you just said okay it's a model flying model airplanes but to do it for anything for the nation you know that's just yeah that's special and if i reflect on the ones that i've been to i've done three worlds and a couple of aox uh which is the asia pacific uh, championships um i still remember walking up to the uh, uh pilot spot for my very first international flight. And that was at the World Championships in 2013 in South Africa. Uh, my partner at the time uh, was actually there. She came with me and uh, she was fantastic. Uh, she great support and, and, you know, I flew my wings off on that flight. Um, it still it still tears me up, mate. So I'm sorry, but no, uh, well, I, you know what? I don't blame you because just the thought of turning up, like for me, just turning up to if you know if I got that opportunity, and you know, believe you me, I've looked at categories and thought, 
gee, how can I get to a world champs? I've looked at um, discus launch gliding. Like, oh, yeah. yeah like yeah. DLGs, there's the reason why it'd be easier for me to get in because there's not that many people that compete in DLG, so there's less competition. But I had David um, David uh, Millwood on the podcast who he went to the World Champs, the same kind of experience that he – but the, he flew every single day with his DLG because he wanted to get better and to be able to have that opportunity to go and fly to World Champs. So, like, to me, it's like going to Olympics. And what about – like the thing, the, I always ask people that have gone to World Champs and stuff, what was it like taking your model over there? Because I just think that'd be the world's biggest hassle. That's why I like DLG because I think it's small and be easier. But how hard was it to get your model over to these World Champs? Well, I guess especially for the first one, in a word, I'd probably say scary. <laughs> you know, I made up a decent box and all that sort of stuff, and uh, it wasn't as difficult back then as it is now. It is a bit more challenging now. They're certainly charging you more for it and, and all that sort of stuff. There's all sorts of issues that apply to your equipment. Um, if it's IC, it has to be completely free of fuel, and it's probably safer to have the engine out of the model so you can demonstrate that and ship it in maybe your luggage. In fact, there might have be rules around that now. I'm not sure. Um, certainly is around batteries, gee whiz, batteries. I've had everything from no problem whatsoever to being held at the airport with the equipment for you know an hour and a half waiting for the carrier to confirm that it is actually okay to take those on board. Um, and again, that's surrounded by regulation as well. Like your radio, you've got to take that on as hand luggage and it must not be turned on regardless of whether it's got a transmitting module or not, you cannot turn it on. Um, and the batteries had to be as hand luggage as well, but there's limitations on what hours and um, uh, how many you can have. Uh, each carrier is kind of different. Um, and, you know, there's been... Fortunately, I've always managed to get through um, and relatively, you know, easily, apart from that one occasion that I mentioned. Um, and... You know, talking to the, to the other guys, some have had their stuff um, taken off them. You know, they've gone to board the planes and, and, and they've only had a couple of batteries with them. And, uh, you know, security has said, no, nope, you're going to have to hand them over. And they not only do they not get them back, but they're stuck when they actually arrive because they've got nothing to practice with and they have to organise an alternative, you know. Um, yeah, that can be tricky. It can be certainly tricky. Well, do you – everything's been put on hold as far as competitions at the moment. Um, are you what, – what are your future plans with F3A? You know, we know that uh, the F3A world champs are coming to Australia. So, you know, is that something that you're setting your yep. sights for? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm – I'm still in two minds about the next one, which is in America. And to be honest, we still don't really know what's going to happen there. That's next year. Um, but yeah, the one coming to Australia for sure. Um, you know, I mean, I love competing in Australia. I've competed, uh, sorry, competed in most parts of Australia, South Australia, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria. Um, and, and I love it. Um, so even if, you know, I'm not at my best. Yeah, I foresee myself participating and I would like to think I've got a few more worlds left in me. Um, you know, I think 
as you age naturally your body slows down a little bit your your sharpness your reflexes all those sorts of things your eyesight everything starts to get a bit more compromised so really the younger pilots have a physical advantage um, but I would like to think yeah I've still got it in me to, to keep going and and get to a few more if I can how often are you getting out flying nowadays uh, right at the moment, still not much. I mean, we've only really just sort of freed up in Victoria. Even though the restrictions started to lift, we still had club restrictions as well. So, you know, we had to book in to use the field and, and, and different things. So, you know, it's been a bit limited, but I set definitely want to be sort of getting back in and sort of flying at least a couple of times a week um, as soon as I can. Where's, um, what's your main club that you're flying at? Uh, it's Yarra Valley. Um, uh, Yarra, Yarra Valley Aero Modellers out in Yarra Glen. Yeah, it's a good club out there. Yeah, yeah. Now, lovely. You've been a legend, Dennis. I really uh, in, enjoyed having you on the on the show. But there's a signature question that I ask everybody uh, in every interview, and that is, what has been your favourite model to date? Whew. Well, are we just talking F three A or just any any plane, any model that you've owned throughout your years of flying? Oh well, my favourite model. Geez, that's a hard one to answer. <laughs> There's been so many good ones. Um, look, I'd have to say, you know, I can look at it from the perspective of, you know, what do I have the most fun with? Um, and you know, I I can start even with uh, the, the the current F three A model, which is the Ascent biplane. You know, it's such a capable model. If you just if you don't want to fly schedules, if you want to fly, you know, particular manoeuvres, close in, knife edge, whatever, and just have fun with it, it it'll do it them. It'll do them all so effortlessly. Um, it's a lot of fun. But you know, you get a super dynamic. Uh, electric F5D model that's got you know three and a half kilowatts in the front of it and only weighs about two and a half kilos. Um, that power to weight is more than double what an F3A model has got. So you know the fun you can have with that, launching it vertically and accelerating that fast that you're almost losing sort of enough of a connection between sight and fingers to keep it going where you want it to go, other than up. Um, yeah, that's exhilarating. That's amazing, and I love that sort of stuff. But uh, look, I think I'd probably say my current parent pattern model, which is the the uh, High Yang Ascent biplane. Yeah, well, it sounds like a good model, Dennis. A really big thank you for joining me. You're the first uh, pattern F three A guy that we've had on, and and you gave us an awesome understanding of of F three A, what's involved with the your activity, and and lots of bits of gold that I, I've you know got a lot of value out of myself so a big thank you I hope to see you out the field uh, over the coming year when we're hopefully going to be free we'll yeah. get out and just have some fun again so big thank you for joining me Dennis but uh, my pleasure and thank you for the opportunity because you know something I hope this does is inspires a bit more motivation and activity around the whole thing and helps others you know, um, you know. I know I always look for a lot of help when I was progressing and still do. So uh, I hope it's beneficial to everyone. No, definitely thank is. Big thank you, Dennis. No worries at all, mate. Absolute pleasure. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know.
I think that's enough for this week's episode of the Flat Out RC podcast. Really enjoyed that chat with Dennis Travisaros. What a legend of a guy. He, uh, he's a true gentleman. Uh, great guy to always see at the field. Uh, and very, very knowledgeable and very passionate about his model fly, flying. And so, please, if you see Dennis, say good day. If you're down in, uh, at an F3A comp or something like that. And all the best to Dennis. And, and the other guys flying uh, pattern. They're, they're a good bunch of guys really passionate about the art of F3A flying. So give it a go. God, there's an F3A association. Uh, let's see if I can find. Uh, is F3A Australia? F3A.com.au, Australian Precision Aerobatics. Get onto their website if you're interested in, in getting involved. You can find out more there. Australian Precision Aerobatics f3a.com.au if you're listening abroad pattern f3a flying is, is happening all around the world so get in touch with your local group and get involved and you will become a gun pilot no doubt you will become a gun so big thank you to Den- dennis big thank you for all of you for joining me here on the flat out rc podcast don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so that you're always notified when the latest episode is out don't forget the flat out rc facebook instagram page as well jump on board to those social platforms to stay tuned and of course the youtube channel as well so a big thank you and we'll be back next week probably talking to scale next week so stay tuned